The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Evan Lucas, Head of Strategy at Investmark. And I'm Stephen May, Contributor at Eureka Report, Founder of Crikey, Shareholder Advocate and City of Manningham Councillor. And we are The Money Cafe. Stephen, hey, how are you doing? Thank you for having me on to this, this fantastic program. I know you and Alan these days are absolutely running riot on here, so it's a, it's a pleasure to, to join you. I'm going to start you off because I think there is a lot for you to cover with what's going on right now, particularly AGM mini season. Before we get to that as well, last night we have seen a new top five world company. Can you take us through the absolute mania that is going on in AI at the moment? Well, extraordinary stuff. And NVIDIA, which is the, 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 the biggest player in both the hardware and the software space for AI, has shot the lights out, uh, a quarterly result where revenue was 50% above forecast and the market reaction has been a 20% increase and the price was already ridiculously overdone, people, people were saying. Um, so the market cap as we speak is is $900 billion US dollars. It's more than Berkshire Hathaway um, and that makes it a top five stop global, globally. So the AI boom is just absolutely taking off and uh, this is the, the go-to stock for that boom in NVIDIA. The way that I also look at that, that's just insane, just doing the back of the envelope calculations in my head, that means it would basically be almost 80% of the ASX total. I mean, that is insane in terms of how big that is. It, it feels exactly like the start of what was going on when crypto really took off. It feels exactly like that same mania. I mean, this is a company, as you and I both know, that doesn't actually make any money yet, right? So it, it's it's about being involved and being positioned. I get that. But there is going to come a, a reckoning before it gets back to normal. And, and for me, it's just going to be another one of those examples that you and I put in textbooks to point out of going when markets get irrational because that's clearly what this is. Yes, AI is an exciting future. There is no doubt it's going to be part and parcel of our life going forward. But it's, it's a heck of a lot of evaluation for a company that is realistically in its infancy in terms of what it's trying to do. Yeah, but when people were expecting revenues of $7 billion and you're suddenly doing $11 billion, that's real money. That's true. I agree. I don't, I don't deny that at all. And the future of it is absolutely clear in terms of what's going on. But it's like all those euphoric mania stocks there will be a reckoning that comes with it too. Look, I think so. But for, for now, we've now got a big six, not a big five. And I think we, we add NVIDIA to Amazon, you know, uh, yeah, Alphabet, Microsoft, Google, uh, you know, and uh, Apple. Apple, you name it. So, yeah. um, and the Americans are just dominating. I mean, the American hegemony is extraordinary. Big tech, and then they're doubling down on AI, which is obviously the next extension of big tech. So, uh yeah, look, it's just incredible. And meanwhile, over in the in in Washington, you've got ridiculous debt cliff uh, uh, sort of games of chicken going on, and the uh, markets are getting very nervous overall about American default, American dominance, and a very American default all happening in the same news cycle. Yeah, I, I must admit the debt ceiling this time around is is interesting because 
it's the first time that I've seen this in the last four negotiations. There's almost this sort of sanguine acceptance that it will get done, right? Yes, the volatility is there and it finally should be clicking on because we are getting way too close to next Thursday's deadline. Janet Yellen overnight saying that, you know, if we don't get this done, we will default on the 1st of June. We will not have enough money to actually pay, you know, our creditors and what we owe to the workers and social security, et cetera. But there's just a calmness that's it's it's actually disconcerting from my perspective, Stephen. I just there there needs to be a little bit more of, a, of an issue here, and it was good to see. I think is the term that you know June maturities actually started to fall out of bed last night to wake up to the fact that politics will be politics, and politicking is starting to really kick in. I mean, to get the deal done, signed, sealed, delivered without having any possible hiccups. They realistically need a deal to be done by Friday so that all of the mechanisms of US you know, administration can be signed off before the 31st of May being next Wednesday. So I, I, I'm, this is much closer to the win than I think is being given credit to at the moment. I agree. I think the market's assuming that uh, sanity will prevail. It's because that's what history's told us, right? Because that's that they've never jumped off this cliff. They've only ever looked over it in the yeah. past. Um, but if they actually, I mean, if they do default, it will be a, a temporary oh. default. So they'll miss a payment or they'll, they'll miss payments and then they'll make up the payments. So it won't be a, a, debt, a permanent debt default. It'll be a temporary liquidity pause. But the credibility damage that does to the reserve co- reserve currency um, uh, is uh, is pretty irreparable. You'd think yeah. the politicians would be rational and not self-inflict uh, global global brand and integrity damage to America's uh, previously impregnable uh, credit rating. Yeah, and I'd agree. I mean, again, the one that was always interesting was the one under Trump's administration and how close that got. I mean, that got within hours. Um, And that's, again, I think that's been the closest one when Obama had to negotiate with the Senate, which was then controlled by the Republicans. It got within something like 18 hours, so it was not as close um but at the same time they were much more volatile periods than the one that we're seeing right now because i think it's because there's this this overall nicety between kevin mccarthy and, uh, and joe biden about the negotiations but they're still fundamentally quite far off i mean kevin mccarthy wants actual physical discretionary spend to go backwards whereas the democrats are arguing very strongly that it's just going to remain unchanged and it doesn't seem to be any sort of give on that point yet. So that's, that's the one to watch from my perspective on that space. Getting back to what I said at the start of this, AGM mini season, what has been your take so far? Because we're also coming up to confession season. We're getting very close to that June 30, and there has certainly been some interesting releases coming out so far. Yes, well, I mean, the AGM mini season for all those December 31 balance day companies, it finishes on May 31. So we've got the last flurry over the next week. And uh, right now, uh, as we speak and record this at uh, 9 o'clock in the morning on Thursday, uh, one of your favourite companies, Boart Longyear, is having their virtual AGM. Now, this is a bizarre company because I think the total losses for uh, equity investors and debt investors since Macquarie floated this dog um, just before the GFC, it must be approaching $5 billion. And it, it's a bizarre company because it's sort of it, it, it's listed on the ASX. It's registered in Canada. Its head office is in Salt Lake City. So there's 10 directors up for election. There's no remuneration report vote, so it's not going on the, the ASX rules. 
Um, and uh, they report that they've got 1.7 billion US dollars in accumulated losses, and they're supposedly the world's biggest drilling company for mining. But somehow, during a 15-year mining boom, they've lost, you know, four or five billion dollars. Uh, and Macquarie made hundreds of millions of dollars when they flipped it, having bought it and then flipped it onto the ASX at the top of the commodities boom just before the GFC hit. So. Uh, there's still 3,000 long-suffering Australian retail shareholders sitting there. I'm one of them. And so I've just fired in five written questions before jumping on with you. I, I was one of those. And, and to clarify your comment at the start, what Stephen's alluding to is that when I first really was cutting my teeth in this world, it was a company that came across my desk quite quickly and quite heavily. It was very much backed by a lot of research that was being given to me at the time. And, yeah, I, I, I didn't do enough due diligence even with all that research and i'm very open about this this is my biggest investment mistake um and i still to this day will openly say that bought long year has and always will be the thing i pin to my wall to remind me to always be vigilant and exactly what steven's telling you right now is why you need to continue to review everything that you have because again as steven said long-suffering shareholder former long-suffering shareholder these kinds of mistakes uh, are, are not as uncommon as they seem, and, and that's why I'm glad you brought this up because bought long year, as I said, is and remains my biggest headache and the biggest lesson I've ever had on investing in general. Yes, and Macquarie still doesn't seem to get the blame for it. From uh, you know, they, no one, no one mentions you know the Macquarie history with them uh, dumping it on the ASX and then it falling apart. So, now just other AGM action, uh, Regal Funds Management. Uh, a couple of days ago, they bought the uh, VG the VGI Group as sort of backdoor listing. There's two Sydney investment bankers, David Kingston and Malcolm McComas, and they're sort of rich blokes who are now sort of shareholder activists, particularly in the lick space. And I was just listening to it. They just tore them apart. I mean, I've never seen shareholder activists as informed and tough. And they've turned, they've, they've fixed up sort of six or eight different lick situations now where they've forced companies to be privatised um, and uh, and they just did another virtuoso performance at Regal Funds Management about the $180 million discount on their two licks. Um, had some fun yesterday at Telex Pharmaceutical, which is just a booming uh, Melbourne-based company um, providing, helping people with cancer with their imaging tests globally. Um, and the chairman, uh, Kevin McCann, uh, he's the former Macquarie chairman, and I finally got him to explain why he was able to join competitor Evans and Partners, the advisory board, when he was the chairman of Macquarie. And he came out and said, oh, Macquarie said that Evans and Partners weren't even competitors at the time. So uh, that's why I could uh, I could join them. So I thought that was a nice, interesting historical... Uh, that's a very interesting point. Good work on getting that out because that also shows you... A, how far Evans and Partners have come, and B, what Macquarie thinks of those sort of second-tier providers because Evans and Partners is well and truly up on Macquarie now and their funds management business. Yeah, well, I, I thought it was a bit disloyal of Kevin at the time because I thought Evans and Partners was trying to cut Macquarie's lunch, but his, his defence, because I said yesterday, are, are you going to go and, go and join a competitor when you finish up at Telex Pharmaceutical like you did at Macquarie? And he said, "Oh no, they, they, you know, they were no competitor and that sort of stuff." And the other amusing one at Telex Pharmaceutical was uh, Jan Skinner, who's the chairman of the audit committee. Uh, I asked about whether we we're going to sack PwC after all the scandals, 
And she sort of said, oh, no, no current plans and we've, they've got an evergreen contract without saying that she herself was a partner of PwC for 17 years mm-hmm. um, before becoming a professional director. So, uh, um, yeah, that was interesting. I, I am asking the standard PwC question whenever they are the auditor and, uh, yeah, a few hard questions are being asked by the directors of PwC but mostly the answer is just we, we've sacked all those tax people and, uh, and we're getting on with life. What about Viva Energy? What did you take out of that? Well, I mean, both Viva Energy and Waypoint uh, were interesting in terms of their, you know, they're both booming. You know, shares are at very high points. The conveni- convenience retail is so strong, but they're so slow on ele- electric vehicle take up. I mean, Waypoint REIT, which is the uh, owns a lot of uh, Shell Shell branded petrol stations, they've only got EV charging in five of their four hundred and two petrol stations. Just goes to show how long we have got to go to get the infrastructure in to really seriously roll out electric vehicles. If you know, the major petrol station landlords have got you know five out of four hundred and two fast charging infrastructure installed, I also found it interesting that obviously they've just done the the big major takeover of OTR, so on the run. And and their stores around there, and there is no signs in any of that takeover discussion of changing towards, as you said, fast charging. They they are old model, old way, full of a stable future. Um, Absolutely is, right. And uh, that's just fascinating. Interesting. The Seven Eleven is up for sale off the back of that ETR price. Yeah. Yeah, exactly and, right. Um, you know, I think that's just that's an opportunistic, you know, by by, by Jingo. If a South Australian focused uh, chain is worth over a billion then um, what can we get as the operating business of 7-Eleven? So yep. um, I yeah, suspect exactly. it'll go for a couple of billion. Um, and, uh, yeah, that'll be, that'll be a big sale when it happens. So, yeah. Final one for you is Costa. Which one is that? The, um, oh, oh. Costa. Yes, I'm going to Costa this morning So because um, they're, the, they're Australia's biggest supplier of, you know, um, uh, fruit and vegetable grower and, yeah. and retailer. And they're having an 11 o'clock AGM today, but it's a physical AGM with no online so I'm actually going to be going into the city to ask. That, that is that is not the new world way of keeping up to date with your shareholders. That's um that's very interesting. Yeah, well, the chairman is Neil Chatfield, who's also the chairman of Aristocrat Leisure, the pokies giant, and he did the same thing to me at Aristocrat when he didn't like all my questions last year, refused to publish the archive of the webcast, and then withdrew the ability to ask online questions this year. So each time he does it, I have to you know fly to Sydney for Aristocrat or or head into uh, the Freehills office this morning to uh, to give him a, a much tougher workout in person than he'd get if he just dealing with a few written questions from home. So that's my lesson I'm trying to say. If you if you hide away from the online questions, you might just get a visit. And that's the word, right? Hide away. I mean, what? why would you not open yourself up to what you should be doing, which is continuous disclosure, um, and actually, you know, being exposed that way? That's... Um, that always catches the attention. If you are trying to close your doors, why are you closing your doors? Yeah, well, exactly? quite a few. Quite a few have I mean, Santos yes. and uh, Centre Group were two big companies that that offered online last year and then took it away this year. Yeah. Um, so look, it's, it's just the ASX or the Corps law should just mandate it that if you're an ASX 300 company, you have to offer online voting and online questions. I mean, the online voting in particular. I mean, if you've got a hundred thousand shareholders and you can't. You know, you can't turn up to the meeting. Then you should be able to listen to the meeting and then vote, having listened to the debate. And the technology is there, but uh, co- the companies are just choosing not to do it because they want to turn the AGM into a non-event. Yeah, and I also love the fact that their argument is that they want to streamline it and make sure that it runs in an orderly fashion. Well, that's an interesting way of looking at it. That's that's again, 
being able to skirt through the questions that should be asked of you. If you are a listed company, you need to have questions asked of you and actually make sure that you're, A, doing your strategic direction, that your costs are in the right place, and, and what you're actually doing is into the value of shareholders and also to the value of the overall community. I think well, that's, that's right. That's right. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to put up with a question limit. I mean, Jeff, yep, Brown, the Collingwood president, who's also the chairman of M&A Financial, the old Mollus Australia, he again withdrew the online. So I flew to Sydney and went to his AGM and he, he imposed a 10-question limit for the meeting. I said, fine, that's good. Happy to live with that. But uh, don't just don't just try and suppress shareholders by you know don't don't do a Rupert Murdoch who says one question over one minute for the whole meeting, which is pretty tough when you've flown all the way to LA from Melbourne and you get there and he tries to tell you you can ask one question in one minute for the whole meeting. Mm, yep, completely. What about the Victorian state budget? That was an absolute shocker, wasn't it this week? That that's an understatement. That is a horror story. There is no sugarcoating that. None of that. I found it very interesting that the selling of the COVID levy and we'll get to that in a minute, that $34.6 billion it's going to raise just happens to be almost exactly the same amount of money for all of last year's election promises. And that, 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 that to me is what I find the most interesting out of all of this is that higher taxes, when they say they're here temporary for 10 years, well, that's, you know, once you get that, that law into place, the, the probability of it actually unwinding is low. I know they've said they're going to mandate it's there for 10 years, but that will become part and parcel with life. Therefore, it will get locked in. Yeah. I also found it incredible that this isn't actually going to get debt in under control. We are talking about debt still ballooning out to $171 billion over the next four years with no form of revenue in sight to offset that. Um, that, to me, is what really, really worries me. Yes, they're putting pause on some of their infrastructure projects, but there is no suggestion about how they're going to rein in the costs of the ones that are actually going, which are not just ballooning, they are expanding at almost exponential rates. Um, and that is, I think, the biggest you know, catastrophic about this, the big build that the Andrews government has put in place, the no checks and balances, the no accountability for the cost of it is what caused me to sit up and just go, this is an absolute horror story that you and I, being Victorians and paying Victorian rates, will be not just wearing for the next 10 years but for decades to come. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, uh, the fact that revenues are going to rise from $83 billion to $100 billion over the four years, yet spending is already at $97 billion. Mm-hmm. So that's, <laughs> they're basically losing, bleeding a billion dollars of cash a month yeah. at the moment. And so the steady state position is just unsustainable. They're, they're literally, they will, they will go broke. And, and I just don't like how they've targeted the hits. I mean, the 40% increase in work cover premiums, I mean, that hits employers, obviously, and um, and they hid that before the election. I mean, they had an election six months ago when they had a billion-dollar work cover deficit, and, and now they've come out and, and whacked up the premiums by 40%. And, and I agree with you. And not only that, like this is the argument. Like I've heard people say, oh, but we voted them back in. I said, we did not vote back in a budget position that we were told like this. They yeah. had... They, they had and should have done a pre-budget release. There was no suggestion last year of this kind of problem. They would have yeah. known this. Exactly. I mean, the Western distributor is an absolute basket case. The cost of closing up the East-West link has been a basket case, despite the politics around it. The 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 overall you know rail projects that are going on again are out of control from a cost perspective, and there has been no attrition to suggest that we have got this wrong or that we need to stop some of it. I mean, they are now blaming the feds on stopping the airport link, but that's 
that's a project that you know wasn't actually underway and it's you know it can be taken out of the budget that's fine and then to say there and sit there with a smile we're going to have a surplus in six years time of a billion dollars how yeah exactly how because there is no there is no productivity growth in victoria there is no export of you know we're not queensland or western australia that actually has commodities to export and therefore take some form of of royalties revenue there is only services in victoria and they are not being captured yeah and and you know what i like back when i was uh jeff kennett's one of his press secretaries looking after the treasurer alan stockdale in 1992 three or going into the 93-4 budget, we, we more than doubled land tax revenue to $450 million, And this was considered a massive tax grab at the time. How can yeah. you do- more than double land tax yeah. revenue to $450 million? With these latest land tax slugs they've introduced, the highest in the country, land tax is going to bring in $6 billion in 23-24. Yeah. Meanwhile, they're capping council rates. And so land tax is actually going to overtake council rates for the first time. As, as we keep on lowering our cents in the dollar and they're getting capped and they're just grabbing the cash like crazy. And then same with the payroll tax. I mean, I really don't like these differential rates where, you know, if your payroll's over $10 million nationally, you'll pay an extra half a percent. If your payroll's over $100 million nationally, you'll pay an extra 1% in payroll tax and payroll tax is going to bring in $8 billion. The only tax increase I did like in this budget was the wagering tax increase on the sports bets of the world, up from 10 to 15%. So gambling revenue is going to be a record $2.6 billion this next year and projected to rise at 5% a year. So they're certainly not going to be doing any gambling reforms based on the growth in revenues they're projecting there. No, I agree with you. I, I also think what's starting to be quite interesting is that this is the first time that Gen Z is actually being significantly hit. And I know that he continues to sit this, and this is the Premier and also to some extent the Treasurer, about landlords being, you know, only 860,000, et cetera, et cetera. The latest consensus from 2021 actually shows that one of the biggest groups that are rising in investment properties are Gen Z. Gen Z actually have gone away from looking to own your own home to what they call life betterment. That's the Gen Z term. And they are more likely to have an apartment or some form of unit that they have as an investment as their overall long-term wealth creation. And these people are not on extraordinary revenue numbers. They are not on huge income. And it actually showed that about one in five Gen Zers are property investors. And they're expected, according to their surveys, they want to actually probably creep up to about one in three. They believe that investment in property and also in the market is a much better thing for their lifestyle. So this is what I think is also fascinating is that the group of people that he thinks he's targeting is clearly not normally his standard voter group, but he has actually hit people that is there. And and just to give you a really poor anecdotal evidence, I mean, I was in the ABC yesterday and the makeup artist there who is fresh out of university and is studying still to get into law, she asked me this question. She said, I've, I've got a, a unit. What, what what do I do now that I could have up to $1,300 a year increases? What do I do? And I said, you've got to make a decision. You are you know, you know are holding an investment for your own long-term future. You, you need to look at it from do you cover the costs or, and wear it or do you have to hand it on? Now, that is not a question that you're the only person grappling with. Every single landlord is now grappling with that. And this term that landlords are untouchable and, you know, boohoo to them, it's not about that. This is going to end up on the poorest people in Victoria. There, it, it, And that's not my opinion. 
That is global fact. You have to look at the Irish story. You look at what's going on in Berlin. They have done similar things to what we've just seen, and all of them have seen the same problem. Massively increase in rents, faster turnover of rental agreements because the only way landlords can raise rents is to kick their, their tenant out and then release it, and higher increases of actual unrentable properties. And what I mean by that, more properties go to owner-occupier because investors just give up and hand it back. Yep. Owner-occupiers, on average, have less people in them than rental properties, which means there are people that are therefore left by the wayside and are unable to find shelter. Yeah, well, I, agree. I do agree that the family home, the tax shelters on the family home is relatively even more pronounced now because, yep. uh, I mean, uh, the only tax they do pay is the rates, except, of course, the, the church manse uh, where all churches don't pay any. Uh, that's, any a, that's a good debate. I mean, that, that debate around that, so, you know, churches, they should be taxed higher. The other argument is so should unions, right? There, there, there is there, the, the tax write-offs that churches and union groups have needs to be addressed. Yeah, um, well, interesting that Dan's uh, uh, getting rid of the tax, uh, the payroll tax exemption for the fifteen most lucrative and expensive and posh private schools in Victoria. Um, which again, I don't. I mean, just what, it should have a flat rate. You either either private yeah. schools pay payroll tax or they don't. Yeah, this idea you that don't you, you pick the 15, 15 high fee ones, and Caulfield Grammar's got suddenly got a six million dollar payroll tax bill every year. They got to pay the government. I mean. It's just, uh, I just think they wish they'd treat everyone equally, but the feds do the same thing. I mean, I don't think we should have a differential company tax rate, but, you know, if you're over 50 million you pay, in revenue, you pay 30%. If you're under 50 million, you pay 25%. So I just wish, we, like City of Manningham, everyone pays the same. Uh, there's no differential rates. It's all based on, uh, you know, 0.155% uh, of your property value, whether you're Westfield, Doncaster or the, the, the smallest little uh, $400,000 unit, you're all paying 0.155% in 23-24 and you've got to live 644 years before you pay the value of your property in rates and that is amazing value you've let in properly i mean i know we, we, we sort of haven't finished talking our discussion but i do want to pick up on what you've just said there because we have a question that's come in and i want to get to that question to keep going and allow you to keep talking about that it came from lee does say hi alan so hi to Stephen. i have a comment and a question about council rates i have heard a few questions and comments on the money cafe that rising property prices cause council rates to rise and therefore shouldn't falling property prices cause council rates to fall that obviously goes straight to you. He had three points. The council sets an annual budget for the year. The budget, they determine the total amount of rates to be collected. The state government has to approve these rate rises. Second one was the council then uses relative property prices across the council area uh, to respectively apportion a rate amount to the individual rate or is it three property rising uh, or falling has no impact on total rates. Do you want to keep going through with what Lee had there? Yeah, so look, he, he's right. We don't benefit as councils when property valuations rise. We just will lower the cents in the dollar amount. So to give an example, in Manningham this year, the total value of rateable properties has dropped by $490 million to $66.67 billion. So because there's been a drop in valuations, we've had to do a slight increase in the cents in the dollar 
and the, 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 the rates are regulated by the state government and they tell us we can only lift the average rate bill. So it's all based on the average by 3.5%. So the average is up 3.5%, but then people will be higher and lower than that depending if their valuation has gone up or down. But absolutely not. Councils do not benefit from rising valuations. If valuations rise, we will lower the rate in the dollar. So we just get regulated and we set it based on the average rate actually paid. So it's, it takes away any lumpiness like you get in land tax and stamp duty, which is all based on percentage. So um, that's right. Now, the next... Um, did you want to, I actually wanted to pick up also, we should probably just, we also just spoke about taxation and the Victorian government. I'm going to also therefore jump to the GST question, I think is the next one to, to go to, Stephen. And that came from Pat and it said, huge fan of the podcast. Recently, Alan and James discussed that raising the GST would be a more equitable way of managing inflation as it affects everyone, not just those with a mortgage. Given the RBA has a mandate to manage inflation and the federal government is too scared to manipulate the GST, why not hand over the control of the GST to Dr. Lowe and the RBA? It makes sense to give these few more levers to be pulled at an ever-changing landscape surrounding monetary policy. Mm, the one thing I'll just probably before I let you go, Stephen, GST is not monetary policy, it's fiscal policy. Um, taxation, it, it definitely falls to the government, so that could never actually be the case. But an interesting thing to discuss is is GST and, and, and how it could be used and why it would actually be a much more equitable use of, of, of taxation rather than what we currently have. Yes. Well, I, I mean, I, I've, I've debated with Alan before where I think we we, we undercook our GST um, as, a, as a, you know, I think it's unfair that 48% of federal tax revenue is now income tax. We're far mm -hmm. too reliant on income tax. Definitely. I, don't, I don't believe in handing over fiscal policy to un un unelected uh, technocrats like Dr. Lowe. You've got to have some political uh, accountability. And if you were handing over one tax, would you be handing over every tax and just handing over the whole budget? So yeah. I think we, we've all agreed on independent judges. The world is now agreeing on independent central bankers. But I think we draw the line at independent fiscal budgets, even as the Americans embarrass themselves with debt cliffs and all this sort of stuff. And, uh, and Victoria, you know, Victoria with politically driven budgeting has, you know, got massive debts, but they're finally being disciplined by the, the debt markets, which just simply will not continue to lend to Victoria if it's bleeding a billion dollars a year, a month. And so that's why you've seen Victoria belatedly moving because the, the, the discipline of the markets, the, the source of the debt capital, is ultimately uh, uh, intervening to uh, force some discipline there. Yeah. And so my way of answering that question, and I completely agree with Paul, that there's no way you can put fiscal policy on the desk of monetary policy. They need to be separate. I agree that maybe, Pat, you could debate about other levers that, that monetary policy might have rather than the, the sledgehammer that is, you know, movement of cash rates. But GST, as the discussion, is is fascinating. And, you know, there are reports from KPMG, EY, I mean, the bad boy in PwC, all of them have done massive, massive research dives into why GST is not only just a much more beneficial way of managing inflation, but a much more beneficial way of managing the overall tax take because it also would therefore remove inefficient taxes. So if you were to raise the GST to about 15%, all three of those- Same as New Zealand. Uh-huh, same as New Zealand, exactly New right. Zealand, 15%, not yep. hard. Correct. And not only that, what the papers have found is that, again, the whole idea of taxation is also around living standards, right, Stephen? 
And they have shown that the living standards at 15% GST with the removal of inefficient taxes actually raises living standards by about 4.7 basis points. Uh, And that is almost the optimal level. Now, you'll have a lot of groups saying it's unfair, it hits the lowest socioeconomic group, blah, blah, blah. But the overall impact on the overall population is clearly beneficial. And that is why it needs to be managed. The catch is this, and I'm about to move into something I hate doing, but that is the world of politics. No Labor government will touch the GST like no Liberal government will touch super because both parties hate the respective policies. Um, They've always been against GST. The Labor Party and the Libs have always been against superannuation, despite the fact that both policies are very, very good at what they actually do and do a very, very good job of actually being an efficient forward-moving situation. And that's why at the moment for me, I think the thing to look at is superannuation. I think there is an absolute opportunity that the federal government has the chance to look at superannuation in a much more open way that particularly at pension phase needs to be discussed in a much, much bigger, broader context for the taxation that super should be providing. Now, I would agree with that. Now, one thing that two big parties did agree on, Evan, at last year's election was the stage three tax cuts. And we've had a question from Luke. What is bracket creep? It's been thrown around a lot lately regarding the stage three tax cuts, but what actually is it? Mm-hmm. Now, Luke, bracket creep is basically that you, you you start, you know, with inflation and rising wages, that you, you, you finish moving into a higher tax bracket because the tax brackets are not indexed. So at the moment, it's tax-free up to 18200 Then you pay $0.19 cents in the dollar between 18200 and 45000 Then you pay 32.5 cents in the dollar between 45000 and $120,000. $0.37 cents in the dollar, 120000 $180,000 and 45% above 180000 So because those figures are static, the more you earn, and, you know, people are earning over time, the, the, the you creep into a higher bracket. Yeah, and there's something to interrupt you there. Don't forget there, Luke inflation and wage price indexing means that you will move anyway. You will naturally increase your wage because, you know, minimum wage moves up, but also that your employer knows they need to keep you up with with moving. And if you get a 2% increase in your income year after year, you will go through those brackets relatively quickly. Yeah, and that's why I support the stage three tax cuts because at the moment it's 48% of federal revenue and we've got massive bracket creep happening and, and stage three is a way of uh, giving back some of that bracket creep. Yeah. Now, I know Alan has a different view on this, but I am actually with you on this, Stephen. I, You need to look at it from two perspectives. If you've now got a 30% rate for forty-five to 200000 you could argue that maybe that's too high and bringing it down to one eighty, and, and and that's fine. But the, the freeing up of what it means around bracket creep, again, the only other way to argue it is what you just said, is that it needs to therefore mean that the brackets should move with inflation. Um, and therefore change going from, from that perspective is, you know, 120 needs to be moving towards, you know, 140 and therefore 180 should move to 200 and the 200 should move towards 220 as inflation works. But that that isn't going to happen. So I, I agree. It, it also means that it is less reliant, the federal government, on income tax, and you're absolutely right to point that out, Stephen. It's the one thing that I was just astonished. And not only that, to see from October to the May budget, so six months, a $56 billion increase in tax take because of the employment market we currently have shows that there is a structural problem there and that the income taxation on a group of people that are going to end up having taxation their entire life, so 
Gen X, Millennials, Gen Z, they are the ones that wear this the most and therefore there needs to be a revaluation about how it's done. Corporate tax is one of them, GST we've discussed, and as I said, I've sort of flirted around it. But pension phase superannuation taxation of what we saw in 2000s to 2006, that is the next review that I think also needs to be done. Now, Evan, we're pretty much out of time. Let's just yeah, do one more question. We've got uh, David asking about internal combustion engine vehicles. In in the humble opinions of the Money Cafe uh, uh, prognosticators, how quickly do you think a new ICE vehicle purchase today will lose its value in two years' time, given the uptake of EV and hybrid vehicles in Australia? So my answer to that is it's already happening. And look, in terms of how fast it loses value, I mean, there's always that standard thing is that as soon as you drive your car out of the lot, you lose 25% anyway, um, and then so on and so forth. I think the way I'm going to stage your question, David, is to actually give you real-world examples. You only have to look at what's going on in Europe. You listen to Volvo, you listen to Daimler Chrysler, so obviously either Mercedes, and then BMW. They have already told you that diesel engines – they will not use them from no further than 2030. In fact, Volvo wants to do it from 2025, so two years away. We need a sunset date in Australia too. Our politicians yep. are hopeless. If they're serious about electric vehicles, they'd be saying 2035 is the last sale of a petrol-driven vehicle or a diesel-driven vehicle in Australia, but they won't put a date on it, and that's why the Waypoint REIT and the likes have only got you know five yep. out of 402 with EV charging because there's no drop-dead date. Correct. The other thing I think, and we've just talked about taxation there, um, Stephen, is the differential between, at the moment, uh, an ICE vehicle, so an internal combustion engine, and an electric vehicle is is quite large. There needs to be tax differences. So if you've got a luxury car tax on things like BMW and Mercedes, if it's an EV vehicle, that should be halved. Because at the moment, if you actually look at them, they're about 20 to 30% more expensive than the comparable um, ICE vehicle. Now, that will get more efficient. I know that, but that's just another thought process about accelerating it. If you can give a discount to EV vehicles over ICE vehicles, then you are definitely moving in that step in the right direction. But the uptake of EV is here. It's a given. Again, some people don't think batteries are the future, and I understand that, but they have won the race. They are Tesla has told you that they've run the race. Um, so in terms of your question, David, there is no doubt internal combustion engines will be gone by 2040. Uh, and that therefore just is, you know, part and parcel of the thought process people have. And that is why, you know, these big, massive European leaders are saying and are mandating themselves to move towards EV. Uh, and that's why I know, you know, you talk about this a lot, Stephen, lithium, nickel, et cetera, is such an interesting period and, and why it's it's gaining so much traction because, the future uptake is only going to get bigger. I mean, at the end of the day, the car that is the only asset you ever buy that you will resell apart from your house and yep. property. It's, it, there's not too many things that you buy and then you sell. Uh, at some point, there's going to be a, a, a mass write-down wipeout of internal combustion engine vehicles, but I, I don't think that's uh, going to happen within the decade. I still think in 10 years' time, there will be a second-hand market for Agreed. ICE vehicles. But at some point, you know, in the 10 to 20 years' time, uh, you know, when all the infrastructure is taken out uh, and the taxes are too high, there won't be a market for uh, petrol-driven cars. But uh, I'll be an old man probably when that happens. <laughs> so like to some extent, unfortunately. All right. um, I think we're done. We are. That, that's been that's been great for that. I'll... Um, Thank you, as always, Stephen, for having us, and, and thank you to, for listening to today's uh, episode. Next week, Alan Collar and James Thompson will be joining themselves together. So send in your questions, and they'll answer it together. 
on next week's Exapode. Don't forget the email is themoneycafe at eureka.com.au. And a reminder to keep those questions short and sharp. We do apologise. Steve and I tried very hard to get through and there was an absolute you know, plethora of them today. But please keep them short and sharp. We're un- inundated with them. So unfortunately, we may not be able to read the whole of them and answer the whole of them, but we do love them to keep in. We'll try and get some of them back to Alan and James next week. So until then, I'm Evan Lucas, Head of Strategy and Investment. And I'm Stephen Main. And to Richard, your question about points bet shares. If you sell your points bet shares, you will lose those bonus equity options. There we go. We just snuck in an extra. Snuck another one in. Uh, Evan. But uh, I'm Stephen Main, contribute Eureka founder of Crikey Shareholder Advocate and City of Manningham Council, and we'll see you in a fortnight. Over and out. <laughs>